Please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. I wonder how you handle adversity when it comes your way. Do you overcome it or are you overcome by it? A couple of weeks ago, I was preaching down in Prattville and the pastor, as we drove along, he said, you see that house over there? He said, uh, two members of our congregation, two sisters, live there together and uh, they were both spinsters. The last 20 years of their lives, they never spoke to each other. Uh, one had done something that the other resented, and uh, they lived there together. If they wanted to communicate, they had a third party that they would get in touch with and uh, communicate through the third party. How do you handle adversity? Remember, in Joseph's life, he had a lot of adversity. He was betrayed by his brothers. Uh, then he was uh, sold to the captain of the host of Pharaoh and uh, Potiphar's wife falsely accused Joseph of rape. He was thrown in prison. He experienced a lot of adversity, his trials. But, you know, another trial is prosperity. And in prison, he was there with two other men. One was the baker for Pharaoh, and the other was the butler. Each of them had a dream. And uh, through God, Joseph was able to interpret their dream. He said that the baker's dream indicated that in three days he was going to be beheaded. The butler's dream indicated that within three days he would be reinstated into the presence of Pharaoh and be his cupbearer. And uh, that proved out in each case. And uh, then Pharaoh had a dream some two years later. In his dream, he saw seven fat cows come up out of the Nile River, and then seven lean cows came up after him and devoured the fat cows. A similar dream of seven fat ears of corn and seven lean ears of corn. No one could interpret it, and the butler remembered how Joseph had interpreted his dream. And Joseph was called for, and through God was able to interpret the dream of Pharaoh. He said, King, that means that God is showing you what's going to happen. There are going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And uh, the important thing would be to store up during the seven years of plenty so that there'd be food to cover it when there's seven years of famine. Well, Pharaoh was convinced that was the correct interpretation and very impressed with Joseph. And he and his advisors decided to elevate Joseph to be the number two man in all of Egypt and to be in charge of the setting aside and the later distributing of the food. He was 30 years old at the time. That's a trial. How do you, how do you undergo that and not become proud? When you're 30 years old, suddenly you're over all the land of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. But he overcame both these trials, the adversity and the prosperity. In adversity, he could very easily have been bitter with his brothers, extremely bitter. Many people have been bitter for life, embittered for life, over far less. 
In South America, there's a plant called the matador. It's a vine, and it starts at the foot of a tree, and it'll wind itself around the tree, and gradually, as it reaches the top, it chokes the tree to death. And then a plume suddenly pops out uh, as this matador has won its victory. The word matador means killer. And bitterness can be like that. It starts small, and then it begins to wind itself around your life, and it'll kill the soul. A lot of people in our society, a lot of people in our church, would be suffering from bitterness. It breaks up families. So much uh, in the area of divorce comes from some embitterment, hostility between wife and child and other things. You know, uh, I understand the grizzly bear will share its food with only one other animal, the skunk. It could kill the skunk with one swat of its paw, but it lets the skunk share its food because it knows the high price of getting even. (laughs) Joseph didn't allow his experience with his brothers to embitter him. He had real concern for his brothers. In the 45th chapter, hold your place in the 50th chapter, but in the 45th chapter, in verse 2, you find uh, when his brothers come down, they, their land of Canaan is also uh, part of this famine, and they have to come to Egypt to Joseph for bread. They don't know he's their brother, but he recognizes them. And he makes himself known to them on the second visit. And when he does so, it says in 45.2, He wept aloud, and the Egyptians heard, and the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. In uh, verse 11, he tells them, Move down here. There are yet five more years. I will nourish thee, for as yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. He has real concern for his brothers instead of being embittered or thinking in terms of getting even. He could have been bitter at God for letting this happen to him. Some people get very bitter at God because of the adversity that they go through. But instead, he walked with God and uh, continued to trust him. And he would pray and God would answer. God would reveal uh, the dreams, for instance, the meaning of them. His associates perceived that God was with him and they put trust in him and put him over uh, managing various things. He overcame the trial of adversity and the bitterness that could have resulted. It could have resulted. Uh, he overcame this trial of being elevated and the pride that could easily have resulted. You find that when Pharaoh calls him in and says, I understand that you can interpret dreams. He says, no, no. Oh, no. God will answer Pharaoh. It doesn't reside in me to interpret dreams. But there's a God, and he will give Pharaoh an answer. And uh, later, when he sends word to his father, Jacob, to come down, move down here. There are five more years of famine. He says, God has made me Lord over Egypt. Very careful to give God the credit, not proud. How was Joseph able to do that when so many others would fail? 
by faith, by faith, Joseph did this. In the great chapter on faith in Hebrews 11, where you have the heroes of the faith enumerated and their exploits of faith, it says about Joseph, by faith, Joseph, uh, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. When he was dying, he told the children of Israel, one day you're going to go back to Canaan. And when you do, take my bones with you. Don't leave them here. That's where I'm to be buried. The famous Puritan theologian John Owen, in commenting on that verse in Hebrews, says, Hereby it is most evident that this holy man lived and died in faith. His mind is totally on the promise and thereby on the covenant with Abraham. God had promised Abraham that he was going to bring them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And so his, he's taken up with that covenant promise. Today we'd say it like this. Early in life, Joseph made a genuine commitment to God. He received Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. He trusted Christ as his Savior. You say, well, Christ hadn't come at that point. That's right. But nonetheless, Christ is the one through whom they approach God back then and we approach God now. Uh, Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He is God's way of salvation, and God symbolized that or typified that through the offering of a lamb in the Old Testament. And so, in effect, uh, Joseph approaches God in the correct way. Today we'd say he received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. We make the same kind of commitment that he made when we believe that Jesus was God become man, God and man, that he died for our sins, paid him in full, that he rose literally from the dead, that he is our approach to God. And we, we believe that and we put our trust in him. Instead of trusting that uh, we haven't been too bad or we've been baptized, we trust in Christ to save us as a gift. And we surrender to him. He's our master. Our purpose is to obey him. And we turn from sin in true repentance. Repentance and faith. That's a genuine commitment. Have you done that? He did that. That's one of the keys to his life. That's why he was able to not be bitter. He had someone living in him. God lived in him by his spirit and enabled him to behave differently than other people would behave. Um, my dad shared with me years ago about one time he was down at the train station and uh, a Negro red cap was there and a man came along who was obviously a somewhat arrogant and wealthy man and he was shouting at this old gentleman, this red cap and the red cap dropped one of his bags and he chewed him out publicly and very embarrassing to the red cap. And then the man drove off and my dad went over to the red cap and said, well, don't take it too hard. Uh, some folks are that way. And the red cap had tears in his eyes and he turned to my dad and he said, it ain't what you lives in or drives in. It's what's living in you that counts. 
And that's it exactly. Joseph had someone living in him. He had God, Spirit, living within him. And uh, you can have that even in a greater way than he did through a commitment to Christ. Well, that's the start. That's the part of the key. But not only did he have faith in God as his Savior, but he had faith in God as his shepherd, the one who was directing the events of his life. Uh, Notice in chapter 50 and verse 20, where he's after, after Jacob dies, the brothers think, now Joseph will get us. And they come to him in utter fear and say, please forgive us. And notice his response in verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant, you thought evil against me when you betrayed me. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God was in control of those events and he had a plan. And he was working those events according to his plan. Joseph believed in the providence of God. That God controls the events of this world. Uh, that these things had happened to him according to the will of God. Now, the term will of God, the will of God, is a broad phrase. And we have to be careful how we use it. I like to differentiate between three aspects of God's will, what I'll call God's planned will, God's permissive will, and God's preceptive will. God's planned will is sometimes referred to as his secret will. This is his plan. We don't know the plan of, for the world or for us individually. So it's secret. Now, we know some aspects. We know it's God's plan that Jesus will return, that the world will end, so on. But we don't know what he's planned for next week for you or next year for you. Uh, we don't know what he's planned for America for the next 10 years. But he has a plan. Uh, Sometimes that's called God's decretive will, that planned will, because it has to do with his decrees. What he has decreed will take place. The Shorter Catechism, our denomination standard, going back to 1640s, puts it like this. It says, The decrees of God are his eternal purpose or plan, whereby for his own glory he hath before ordained, foreordained, whatsoever comes to pass. Now, that's a broad statement. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose or plan, whereby he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That's quite a statement. Is that biblical? Must be. It's in our standards, right? No. <laughs> it is biblical. We read in Ephesians 1 where God works all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, 200 years before God told Abraham that he was going to have Israel, Jacob and his sons, come down and dwell in a foreign land. Look at Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Verse 13. 
This is 200 years prior to Joseph. And he, God, said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. Verse 16, in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. Now, uh, here was God telling Abraham 200 years before that he was going to have his seed strangers and afflicted in a foreign land. They'd be there 400 years. So God has to get Egypt or has to get Israel down into Egypt. How will he do it? Well, he has, according to his plan, he has Joseph's brothers betray him. And then he has Potiphar's wife seek to seduce him and accuse him of rape. And then he has the butler and the baker in the prison with Joseph. And he gives the butler a dream and the baker a dream. And then he gives Joseph the interpretation of the dream. And he restores the butler to the presence of Pharaoh, and then he sends Pharaoh a dream and has Joseph interpret Pharaoh's dream. And he sends a famine so that the surrounding nations have to come down to get food. And he has Israel come down. With Joseph elevated there, he provides for Israel. And Israel comes down and dwells there. And now... Abraham's seed are in a land not their own, and they're there 400 years. And then God raises up Moses to lead them out. God had a plan. And God ordered the events in such a way that the plan came about. If you read the 105th Psalm, uh, the psalmist puts it a lot like I just said it. Uh, in that 105th Psalm, uh, he says, God, well, let me read it to you, in uh, verse 16. Moreover, he called, God called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet they hurt. And uh, then he made him lord of his house and ruler of all of his substance, and so on. God did all these things, says the psalmist. Notice all of those things seem to be accidental. The Ishmaelites happened to be going to Israel, or to Egypt, uh, when... Joseph's brothers decide to betray him. Uh, Potiphar happens to buy him. The butler and the baker happen to be in prison. Spurgeon puts it like this. Spurgeon said, All chance as the world sees it, but every link necessary to make the chain. God's providence. God's providence is God's ordering of events in such a way that the plan comes about. Now, you say, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Some of those events were evil. You mean that it was God's will that his brothers sell him into slavery? Here we pick up a different aspect of God's will, God's permissive will. God didn't cause his brothers to slay or to betray Joseph. He didn't cause that to happen. 
He permitted it to happen. He didn't need to cause Joseph's brothers to do something evil. That evil was in their heart. All that he had to do was set the conditions right, give Joseph a dream or two that he shares with them about him lording it over them. And the evil that was in their heart erupted in such hatred that the first chance they betrayed their brother. Uh, God doesn't cause men to do evil, but God channels the evil that they do for his own good purposes. A Baptist theologian put it like this. He said, your right hand and your left hand uh, control all things. Either thy command or thy permission lays hands on all. They are thy right and left. With God's right hand, he causes things to happen. With his left hand, he curbs and channels the evil of men's hearts. Together, they control all events, and they bring about his good plan. What he permits, he could have prevented. If he didn't prevent it, then ultimately it came from his hand. If something happens to you, God could have prevented it. If he didn't prevent it, then he let it happen. So ultimately it came to him from it came to you from God. Think about Job. Job loses all of his wealth, his cattle, his sheep. He loses his family, all of his children, grandchildren. They're all wiped out. Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Wait a minute, Job. Wait a minute. You got it wrong. The devil took away. The Lord didn't do it. The Sabaeans ran off with your cattle. What would Job say? Job said, no, the Lord gave, the Lord takes away. The Sabaeans couldn't run off with my cattle unless God had let them. The devil couldn't take away my children unless God let him. So ultimately, these things came to me from God's hand. The Lord gave them, and the Lord took them away. Later on, God says to Satan, you moved me against my servant Job. God takes credit for doing those things. God says, that's right. I gave them. I took them away. Uh, nothing can happen to us unless God hap- lets it happen. So it came from him. That's what so helped Joseph. That's why he was able to say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You had one purpose in mind in what you did. God had another purpose in mind in what he did through letting you do it. And so I don't need to be bitter. I take it as coming from him and meant for my good. They say, well, uh, if God loved me, we tend to say, if God loved me, he wouldn't let me suffer so. No, turn it around. God does love me, and if he allows me to suffer so, it must be for my good. That was the approach that Joseph took, and that helped him tremendously in not being bitter, not being bitter at his brothers, not being bitter at God. God loves me. Now, see, you use that as your starting point. How do you know God loves you? Well, if Jesus Christ was God the Son, and if he died for our sins then God loves us. Period. That's settled that once and for all. You can never again question 
whether God loves you, if Jesus Christ was God the Son and died for your sins. That's settled that. So use that as your starting point. God loves me, and whatever he sends my way must be intended for my good. And I don't understand his purpose, but I understand his character. I understand who he is. I don't understand what he's doing. I don't have to understand what he's doing. I can trust him. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them that are the called according to his purpose. Now, that's a Christian, one who loves the Lord. doesn't say all things work together for good to those who don't love him, but to the Christian. All things work together for good. God's working all things together for good. Now, let me contrast another view. Here's a Christian writer whose films we've shown here on occasion, a lady who suffered a lot. And in a recent book, she talked about how much comfort she got from a friend who wrote her a letter. And he said this, Would a God of love either perpetuate this pain that you're experiencing it or permit it if he could do otherwise right now? I think not. I think rather he is the primary head of the universe who is triumphing over the unholy powers of his multiple kingdom, but who has not yet put all his enemies down to defeat. You notice what he's saying? He's saying, you need to understand that God loves you, but he can't help what's happening to you. He's doing the best he can. He's got some enemies out there he can't control. And they're hurting you, and one day he'll put them down, but meanwhile, you just got to live with it. God doesn't want these things to happen to you. Let me go on and read what else he wrote to her. He said, uh, Say, even in your pain, God, I know that you would heal me now if you could. I know my pain is utterly frustrating to you. But I will not desert you now. In spite of my suffering, I'm on your side, regardless of your present limitations, God, and the battles you are waging. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible does his armies, does his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? The God of the Bible controls everything that happens. Nothing is too hard for him. And that's not comforting. Boy, if God's not in charge, then this whole thing's out of control. What so comforted Joseph and enabled him not to be bitter was to realize that God is in charge and that he's doing these things to me and he has his purposes and I can trust him and I don't have to be bitter. That is the right approach. You say, well, uh, but when it says that his brothers betrayed him, do you mean that it was the will of God for them to do that? Yes and no. It was the will of God in the sense that was his plan. And he permitted it, that evil. But they were violating his preceptive will. Here we come to a third aspect of his will. His precepts, his commandments. 
Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. That's his plan. But the things that are revealed, his precepts, belong unto us and to our children that we should obey all the commands thereof. They were going against his revealed will. His revealed will is love your neighbor as yourself. They violated his revealed will when they sold him into slavery. And they were responsible. You meant it for evil. It was evil. God will hold you accountable for that evil. You went against his revealed will. Belief in God's planned will gives us courage when everything seems to be going wrong. And we can say, the Lord's in charge. He means it for good. I'll trust him. Belief in God's permissive will says, God didn't cause all this evil, but he's channeling it for his own good purposes. Belief in God's preceptive will says, you're accountable. I'm accountable to obey God's commands. I must not violate those. When I do, I'm going against his revealed will and I'll be held accountable. Very important. Well, what about it? Are you overcoming adversity? Adversity overcoming you. Are you handling it like, like Joseph did? Are you bitter at God for some of the things that have happened in your life? Are you bitter at someone? Corey Tin Boone suffered a lot. She and her sister Betsy were in a concentration camp, a Nazi concentration camp called Ravensbrück. And uh, Betsy died in that concentration camp under the extreme cruelty of the Nazi guards. After the war, Corey Tin Boone uh, went to Germany and and was speaking there about God's forgiveness, a message that the German people, in particular the German Christians, really needed, that God forgives. And after one meeting, as she had spoken on the wonder of God's forgiveness, she saw a man coming toward her. He looked very familiar. She realized that's one of the guards at Ravensbrück. He was one that was especially cruel to my sister, the guard came up and stuck out his hand. And he said, Fraulein, that was a, that was a wonderful message on forgiveness. And uh, she, she didn't stick her hand out. Boy, she had all kind of emotions and feelings. And here she talked about God's forgiveness so generously. And now she was having an awful hard time. He said, I was one of the guards at uh, Ravensbrook. And I did many cruel and hateful things. But two years ago, I became a Christian. And I know God has forgiven me, and your message really warmed my heart with God's forgiveness. But I wonder if you would forgive me now. And he stuck his hand out again. Well, she thought about the fact that God says, if we don't forgive others, then he won't forgive us. And she was running a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. And she said she'd found that those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what their physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. She knew she had to forgive him. She says, as I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart, I couldn't stick my hand out. But forgiveness is not an emotion. 
I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, she prayed. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. So woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. As I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And when this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes, I cried, Brother, I forgive you. With all my heart, I forgive you. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I'd never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Well, what about it? Are we overcoming adversity as Joseph did, as Corey Ten Boom did? Ephesians 4.31 says, Put away all, matter, all malice and bitterness and envy and anger and wrath. And be kind one to another, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. You know, we have, we're in so much better position than Joseph was to do that. We know. We have the Bible. We have the life of the Lord Jesus. We have the death of the Lord Jesus and the resurrection. We know God loves us far better than he knew it. He went through all of that, and he said, God meant it for good. We've got the death of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. Surely we know that God loves us. And if Joseph can forgive and not be bitter at God or at his fellow man, if he can overcome, then you and I can overcome. We have the fullness of the Spirit that he didn't have. He had the Spirit, but not in the full way that's available to God's people since Pentecost. If we have that, surely we can overcome. If you're not a Christian, Pascal points out something interesting. Pascal, the father of the computer, the, the French mathematician, the Christian, he points out how God designed Joseph's life to parallel the life of the Lord Jesus. We think about God's plan. There's so many aspects of the plan. And he designed Joseph's life to be like Jesus' life. Sent by the Father, beloved of the Father, sent by the Father to the brethren, rejected by the brethren, sold, betrayed for money, then in prison, uh, two malefactors there with him. The one uh, he prophesies good for, the other evil. Uh, elevated to the right hand of the throne, providing bread for all who need it. One of those elevated with him. God designed that parallel. When people went to Pharaoh and said, we need bread, Pharaoh said, go to Joseph. Do you need bread? Do you need the bread of life? Go to Jesus. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, are you bitter at anyone? Bitter at God? Overcoming adversity, overcome by adversity. Do you need to reach out a hand to someone in your family or write a letter? Give them assurance of your forgiveness. Do you need to seek forgiveness from someone? Do you need to forgive God? Uh, not be bitter at God. 
Certainly God doesn't have anything to be forgiven for, but you may need to get rid of that bitterness. Have you ever gone to Jesus for bread? Go to him now. If you've never done that, pray like this in your heart. Lord Jesus, I believe you were the Son of God and elevated to the throne through your death and resurrection. And I need a power in my life to help me live different. I need to be forgiven. I surrender my will to you and trust in you as my Savior. Amen.